Hello, and welcome to season four of the Fashion Law Network podcast. I'm your host, Kasia Zabroska-Trobin, a patent attorney and fashion enthusiast based in Los Angeles, California. Join me as I break down legal cases, discuss recent fashion news, and demystify patent law. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me for episode two of season four on the Fashion Law Network podcast today. Hope you guys are having a great week, month of November so far. This is always a time of year when time seems to speed up as we get closer to the holiday season. And I've just been trying to make a conscious effort to slow down and really enjoy this time as much as possible instead of that usual holiday rush. So this October to December is my favorite part of the year. I think we're going to be traveling out of state to see some real snow, which I haven't seen in a long time now living in California, of course, with all the COVID travel issues and considering the fact that I'm part Canadian, not being around snow in the winter makes me a little uneasy. Anyway, as the title of this episode suggests, it's all about the luxury fashion house of Chloe on this one. The Chloe Fashion House is the epitome of Parisian cool and is one of my personal favorite fashion houses. Chloe has been especially on my radar lately because of all the news surrounding their newly appointed creative director, fashion designer Gabriella Hurst, and her major effort at improving fashion sustainability, which of course is a very hot topic in the fashion world. And on October 18, 2021, It was announced on Chloe's Instagram page that they are the first luxury fashion house to be designated as a B corporation. And this is defined as a for-profit company that is certified as meeting rigorous standards of social and environmental performance. So the Chloe fashion house sells women's clothing, perfumes, sunglasses, shoes, and of course, handbags. There's also a lower price line that they own called C by Chloe. And this lower price line was launched in 2001 by Phoebe Philo, creative director of the fashion house at the time, which you guys will probably remember from Celine, my Celine episode, because she made huge waves at that fashion house. So the C by Chloe is described as being like a sister brand to Chloe and provides more options for a younger age group. Now, Chloe is sometimes referenced to as being the brand that actually started it bags before it was even a thing. So who remembers the famous Paddington bag? I sure do. This bag was launched by the fashion house in 2005 and it was like a slouchy longish rectangular shaped bag and it featured an oversized gold padlock on the front. It's been reported that the epic waiting list for that bag was one of the triggering factors behind it bags. On this episode, I will begin by providing a brief history of the Chloe Fashion House and some interesting information about the Swiss conglomerate that owns Chloe, which is called Richemont. This is the second biggest luxury goods conglomerate after LVMH. And then I'll go over some basic tenets of patent and trademark law, some interesting patents that Chloe owns and trademarks, and then finish off the episode by providing my legal analysis of a trademark infringement and counterfeit lawsuit that Chloe was embroiled in. So here we go. Let's first dive into a brief history of the 70-year-old fashion house. 
Chloe was founded in 1952 by Gabby Agnon, and according to Wikipedia, she was born in Egypt and she moved to Paris, France in 1945, founded Chloe in 52, and she had a vision of offering luxury pret-a-porter ready to wear, which at the time was a relatively new concept. Now in 1956, she introduces her first collection at Le Café de Flore, which is one of my favorite cafes and hers apparently, and the meeting place of lots of artists in Paris. <clears throat> the collection was designed by Gabby and made by a first assistant at the time. His last name was Lelong. I love going to Café Floor when I'm in Paris. There's such like an amazing energy there. And it's one of the oldest coffee houses in Paris. Probably one of the most famous along with Les Deux Magots. And it's just really known for their famous clientele, which in the past included lots of really high profile writers, philosophers. And it's reported that Pablo Picasso was a regular. The Café still is really popular hangout for... Lots of celebs and lots of tourists, too, and locals, of course. So then we come to 1966, which is when Karl Lagerfeld became the main designer at Chloe. And in 1971, the first Chloe boutique opened in Paris. And in 1985, the company was acquired by the Richemont Group. And I'm going to get into the details of the Richemont conglomerate after I finish the timeline history of the Chloe Fashion House here. Then we get to 1997 when Stella McCartney comes in and she brings new direction to the Chloe Fashion House. <clears throat> she now has her own line, which I'm sure all my fashionistas are familiar with. It just She just calls it Stella McCartney. Then in 2001, <clears throat> we get Phoebe Philo coming in and she adds a really personal and sensual touch to the clothing. And as I mentioned before, sure you guys will recognize her name as she brought her magic touch to the Celine Fashion House. Then in 2002, Chloe launched their first bag of handbags, small leather goods and shoes. And then, of course, the launch <clears throat> of the Paddington bag just a few years later really catapulted Chloe into like a cult status kind of brand. Um, then from 2006 to 2019, there's a slew of various creative directors, which kind of came and went a year, two years here and there. And then this takes us to 2020, when the previous creative director, Natasha Ramey Levy, announced that she will be leaving in Chloe, and Gabriela Hearst was announced as her replacement and she debuted her collection in March of 2021. So as I mentioned earlier, Chloe is one of many fashion companies owned by the Swiss luxury conglomerate called Richemont. So this is kind of like Caring or LVMH, if you guys have listened to my other episodes. <clears throat> and Richemont also owns Beaumercier Mercier watches, Cartier, Chloe, of course, Montblanc, Panerai, Piaget, Peter Miller, <clears throat> Van Cleef and Arpels, among a few others. And so Richemont, as I said, is based out of Switzerland. They're a luxury goods holding company, and they were founded in 1988 by South African businessman Johan Rupert. Also, interestingly, back in 2018, Richemont took over Ukes and Net-a-Porter, which is just called YNP. <clears throat> 
Now, this online group was formed in 2015 by a merger between Netaporte, which is a British company, and Ukes, which was an Italian company. And they sell clothing and accessories through two separate internet sites. So Netaporte Group is an online luxury shopping site. To me, it's kind of like matches fashion, which I must admit I have a weakness for. And then Ukes is sort of like an online outlet shop where according to the Ukes website, they buy up overstocked or unsold items from previous seasons and then they resell them. So according to thisismoney.co.uk, the YNP business failed to benefit from the internet shopping boom during the pandemic when sales of high-end clothing dived as people stayed home. And it is now struggling to find a foothold in a pretty crowded industry. So Richemont has been in the news recently, kind of based on the little quote that I just gave you. And just the other day, November 11, 2021, it was reported all over tons of various news sites um, like Reuters.com that Richemont is in advanced talks with online retailer Farfetch about selling them a minority stake in the loss-making Ukes Net-A-Porte. So this is probably a move that's going to appease investors that are kind of critical of the luxury goods firm. And Richemont also reportedly said that it would also invite other firms besides Farfetch to participate in turning YNAP, which is the Ukes Net-A-Porte stock symbol, into a neutral industry-wide retail platform with no overall controlling shareholder. So that's interesting. It looks like Richemont saw that the YNAP business model is not doing well, and so they're trying to sell off a few minority stakes here. And according to Reuters again, Richemont had invested heavily in YNAP, trying to make it less capital intensive by moving away from owning all of its inventory to a hybrid model, where some goods are owned by third parties. And this is inspired by Farfetch's asset light model. And I'm not going to get into the Farfetch company business model on this episode, but it's a pretty genius business model, in my opinion. And I discuss it in depth in one of my previous podcast episodes, which I titled, Who's the Fairest of Them All? Farfetch. Also, Reuters was reporting that shares in the Richemont stock surged as much as 10% to a record high after this news of the Ukes Net-A-Porte and better than expected first half results. So it looks like investors are happy about this news. And while we're on topic with business news, Chloe has been in the news recently too, as a fashion house is the first luxury company to achieve B Corporation status as of late October of this year, 2021. So I'm sure you guys have heard of a C Corp, but B Corps are a relatively novel uh, type of corporation. It stands for Benefit Corporation. And it's a you need to get a third party standard that legally mandates companies to act in the interest of people and the environment. According to highsnobiety.com, the process of obtaining B Corp certification can take anywhere from six to 10 months. And according to B Corp's website, only one in three companies that apply for certification are approved and applicants apparently must undergo a long certification process. They have to renew 
their certification every three years and that assesses their impact on workers, community, and the environment. And they have to maintain public transparency regarding their performance. Now this all sounds amazing, but then in doing some additional research about B Corps, since I didn't really know much about them until I read about the Chloe News, I came across this really interesting article all about B Corps written by Michael O'Regan. He is a senior lecturer in events and leisure at Bournemouth University. So the title of his article <clears throat> is B Corp Certification Won't Guarantee Companies Really Care for People, Planet, and Profit. So that kind of goes <laughs> against everything I just read about B Corps. So he wrote this back in 2019. And in this article, he writes, and I'm quoting directly from the article, this little excerpt. So he says, while B Corp claims that certification balances the interests of shareholders with the interests of workers, customers, communities, the environment, B Corp standards are not legally enforceable. Neither the board nor the corporation are liable for damages if a company fails to meet them. And even the changes in a company bylaws remain secret. So a business can fill out that B Corp impact assessment in a few hours and complete the certification process in between four and eight weeks, pay the fee of $500 to $50,000 depending on revenue, and you have your B Corp. So I don't know if maybe the truth lies in the middle, in my opinion, when you have these two kind of extreme views. But according to his article, it seems like it's a pretty lax standard for the B Corporation certification status. And in reading more on the subject, I could really do a whole podcast episode just on B Corp. So I'm not going to get into any more details here, but it does seem to me like this certification is not as impressive as it first seems. Um, at first glance. But I'll leave a link to this really interesting article in the episode notes if anybody wants to check it out. So now let's switch gears and get into the intellectual property law portion of the episode. As always, if you're a regular listener to this podcast series and you already know this intro about patent and trademarks, just fast forward about 45 to 90 seconds. So I'll just give a quick definition of, of a patent first. A patent is a form of intellectual property that gives the owner the legal right to exclude others from making, using, or selling an invention for a limited period of years, and that is in exchange for publishing a public disclosure of your invention. So this is where a patent attorney like me comes in and writes the patent application for the inventor. And in order to get a patent granted, your invention must be useful, novel, and unobvious. That's like the legal standard to get a patent. This is all U.S. law, of course. And you can even patent something that already exists as long as the improvement you make yields unexpected results. And the crux of a patent are its claims, which define in technical terms the scope of protection conferred by a patent. In other words, the purpose of the claims in a patent is to define what exactly is protected by the patent, the subject matter. There are three main types of patents. You have a utility patent, which protects the way something works. In the US, they're usually valid for 20 years. Then you have a design patent, which protects the ornamental nature of the item only. So in our case of Chloe, for example, the overall shape of 
the Marcy bag, for example, which is kind of like that half moon bag with the top handle, could be, and I believe it is protected by a design patent. And then the third and most rare type of patent is called a plant patent, and it applies to new varieties of plants. Now, in looking at the United States Patent and Trademark Patent Database, I found over 30 patents owned by the Chloe Fashion House. They all seem to be design patents. And there's one design patent, which is called a reissue patent. And a reissue patent is filed to correct an error in the original patent, where as a result of the error, the patent is deemed wholly or partly invalid. An error in the patent arises out of an error in conduct, which was made in the preparation or prosecution of the application. This particular one is for the famous Chloe Marcy bag, and the mistake seems to be have made in the description of the original design patent of the views of the drawings that were submitted along with the patent application. And then a little added blurb about broken lines in the patent application drawings. So typically when you submit a drawing for a design patent, you use solid lines and broken lines. And these broken lines are sometimes called phantom lines. The broken lines are used to depict whatever is not claimed. So like the background, which may be needed to see the entire design in context, for example, and in a US design patent, the claim design comprises what is drawn in solid lines. Then of course, Chloe has lots of trademarks too. So let's quickly go over just some basic trademark law. A trademark is defined as being a symbol word or words legally registered or established by use as representing a company or product. There are two types of trademarks. You can have a character or word mark and a logo. So the word marks protect the actual word or brand name of a company. So here, the actual Chloe name, and then the other type is the logo. And an example here in Chloe's case is that large C that they've been using lately. Also, I found a trademark for a logo owned by Chloe for a large C covered in these beautiful leaves and vines. So that's interesting because I don't recall ever seeing that logo associated with Chloe being sold before. It was filed in 2018, so it's relatively new. So I wonder if this is something the Chloe Fashion House will launch soon. I'll be on the lookout and let you guys know. And now we have a little bit of background of intellectual property, especially trademark law. So let's get into my legal analysis and discussion of the trademark infringement and counterfeiting lawsuit that Chloe was involved in. This case is titled Richemont International, Cartier International, Mont Blanc, Chloe, Van Cleef and Arpel, and Panerai. So those are all the plaintiffs versus the partnerships and unincorporated associations identified on Schedule A. And then when you go to Schedule A, it has a list of various company names, none that I have ever heard of. So in pulling up the docket history on this case, it all begins on December 3rd of 2019 when Richemont slash, you know, all their subsidiaries, Chloe and Cartier, among the, um, I believe, five others here, filed their complaint in the Northern District of Illinois. 
And in reading straight from the complaint, it starts off by alleging that this action has been filed by plaintiffs, so Richemont here, to combat international store operators who trade upon plaintiffs' reputations and goodwill by selling and or offering for sale unauthorized and unlicensed products using infringing and counterfeit versions of the plaintiff's trademarks. So then Richemont goes on to allege that the defendants create these internet stores by the hundreds and design them to appear to be selling plaintiff's genuine products while actually selling counterfeit products to unknowing consumers. The defendant internet stores share unique identifiers like design elements and similarities of counterfeit products offered for sale, which establishes a logical relationship between them and suggests that defendant's counterfeiting operation arises out of the same transactions. So they go on to allege that defendants attempt to avoid liability by going to great lengths to conceal both their identity and the full scope and inner working of their counterfeiting operation. So this lawsuit sounds a lot like the various um, lawsuits that have been filed in the past or in the recent past, really, by luxury re, uh, retailers. And one that comes to my mind was that really big joint lawsuit filed by Amazon and Valentino. And I, of course, have a podcast episode about that. If you guys want to go back and listen to it, it's pretty interesting. Um, I think I called it something like the battle of the forces, Amazon and Valentino. And in that case, Amazon and Valentino went after these kind of fly-by-night third-party resellers that were attempting or allegedly selling these counterfeit Valentino products. So the problem with these type of lawsuits is actually finding the defendants and making them pay. A lot of them just establish an online presence for a few days or weeks and then they just disappear and restart their business under a whole other website or name. And Richemont even states that in their complaint when they allege that Tactics used by defendants to conceal their identities and the full scope of their counterfeiting operation make it virtually impossible for plaintiffs to learn defendants' true identities. And they allege that many of the defendants' names and physical addresses used to register the domain names are incomplete, they contain randomly typed letters, or they fail to include cities or states. Other domain names use privacy services that conceal the owner's identity and contact information. And as you guys can probably guess, these defendants don't typically respond to these kind of lawsuits. So then in going back to the docket history here, we get to Richemont's um, filing here, which is their motion for entry of a temporary restraining order including a temporary injunction, transfer of the defendant domain names, and temporary asset restraint and expedited discovery. A few days later, that motion gets granted by the court, and the court does not seem happy in their order here with the defendants with this alleged activity. And the court writes, there's a high probability that defendants will continue to harm plaintiffs without the TRO in place. TRO stands for Temporary Restraining Order. Specifically, 
defendants will likely attempt to move any assets from their financial accounts to offshore bank accounts. As found by the court in granting the TRO, this possibility of harm is significant. So then I went back to the document history in this case, and I found a voluntary dismissal document filed with respect to three of these defendants. Now, I'm assuming that Richemont um, was able to contact those three companies and settle with them, although we're never going to know for sure that because that information is confidential. Um, and then going in back to the document history, there's a few more notices of voluntary dismissal, naming a couple or probably almost 10 more defendants, and this goes all the way through July of 2020. And now the docket history gets really interesting, because starting in March of 2020, going all the way to September of 2020, so what's that, like a span of uh, eight, nine months here, there's various documents filed by Richemont titled Satisfaction of Judgment. And so when you open each one, they're all pretty much similar, just with a different name at the bottom. And here's what they say. A judgment was entered in the above action on February 6, 2020 in favor of Richemont and against the defendants identified in Schedule A in the amount of $200,000 per defaulting defendant for willful use of counterfeit Richemont trademarks. Richemont acknowledges payment of an agreed-upon damages amount cost and desires to release this judgment as to the following defendant name. So this particular one, they named the store called Watchband. So that's great news for Richemont and the luxury world in general because they were actually able to find and get a $200,000 payment from over 10 of these defendant companies. So hopefully news like this will deter other potential counterfeiters from thinking that they can get away with these type of schemes. So on that positive note, this concludes episode two of season four of the Fashion Law Network podcast. And please stay tuned for episode three coming soon. As always, thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye.